Okay, good evening everyone. I think we'll get started. Despite the, the drinks line, we might get started. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and future. For those who don't know who I am, my name is Jill Garner and I have the privilege of being Victoria's Government Architect. I'd like to welcome you to this discussion which is hosted by the Office of the Government Architect and as many of you know, it's the role of our office to advocate for well-designed, high-quality places, buildings and infrastructure and we strive to embed a commitment in government to achieve the best possible design outcomes across an incredible diversity of projects. This extends to hospitals, schools, transport, public spaces and housing. So as advocates for the value, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the word, of what we call good design, it has become critical for us to back up our claims with evidence, which nat naturally gives rise to the most obvious of questions, which is, is good design measurable? Luckily for us, contemporary cognitive psychology and neuroscience tells us that the built environment plays a crucial role in our experiences, in our memories and in our very identities. Studies have shown that long-term memories are processed in the same part of the brain that is used for spatial navigation and in place recognition. If you think about your childhood memories, there is always what's been called detritus of place. There's a swimming pool where you cut your foot or there's the playground where you played a particular game. There's the dining room space where you hid under the table. We tend to recall these long-term memories while remembering something of the place in which they occurred. These, um, you could call them autobiographical memories, make up our identities. And there's no question that the environments that we inhabit shape who we are. Studies have repeatedly demonstrated that there's no such thing as a neutral experience of a built environment. In fact, design can have a critical influence on a person's well-being. Ultimately, this also leads to good design making good economic sense. We at the Government Architects Office are aware of studies. One, that found a patient recovering from surgery in a hospital room with a view outside healed 30% faster than the same patient with a view of a brick wall. This then becomes a premise behind the design of our best contemporary hospitals and health facilities. Other studies show that workers in a workplace will increase their productivity by 25% if we give them natural light during the day. This then becomes a premise behind which we can design our best contemporary office environments. We're also aware of studies that find the design of a school might account for up to 25% of the rate of a student's learning, highlighting the importance of elements such as natural light, ventilation, high ceilings or differentiated surfaces. We need to understand design this simply. We need to design good landscapes, good cityscapes and good buildings of all kinds, everywhere. 
We need to design places that we know will go on to be memorable in the hearts and in the minds of those who will occupy them. So we have asked some of our highly expert colleagues to consider this question. Is good design measurable? We've gathered a collective here of leading design voices under several headings. We have health, education, public space, transport and neighbourhoods. And each of these uh, of our groups of our colleagues is going to offer their views on this question. Um, to help me facilitate what's going to be a very fast discussion, which you will all be pleased about because it's going to get hot, I'm joined by Andrew McKenzie. Andrew is a writer. He'll be familiar to many of you. He's a director of Euro Publications, an independent publisher of books on architecture and design. He's also a director of CityLab, offering advice on design competitions and procurement. So Andrew and I are going to um, tag team some discussions under each of those headings that I called up before. And the first is the issue of health. Thank you, Jill. Um, so, yes, we have five themes, you might say, to briefly talk about. Uh, before I go straight into my first um, uh, interviewee, I guess from my perspective, certainly wearing the last of those hats, City Lab, the two words that are very important in design competitions are evaluation criteria. And it's interesting to see how different t project types and different client types look at those two words in very different ways. But essentially what they are about is how do we get good design out of the competition. So to me they are actually at the, really at the heart of how we decide who gets to design our buildings. It's also important to note that all of the types of buildings we're talking about today are kind of public and therefore they will have a specific kind of quality to them over and above, say, commercial, like uh, retail or, or, or even residential. So that, there's a kind of like an um, interesting kind of background to think about all, all five of these themes. Our first is indeed on health, and our first speaker is um, Stefano uh, Scalzo, who is um, Acting Assistant Director, Planning and Delivery Branch of the Victorian Health and Human Services Building Authority. Um, Stefan has uh, significant experience as an architect um, delivering um, health buildings up and down the country. Um, to go to you first, Stefan, um, I guess the first question I want to ask you is, when it comes to good design, is it true that there are multiple kind of audiences for whom good design will be different? That is to say, a patient's idea of good design versus a client's idea versus the communities. How would you describe the distinctions between, between those three kind of approaches to how you assess good design? Well, that's a very interesting question. Could I just start by getting the obvious out of the room that I do look like Tony from Utopia? And so, <laughs> and I just, I just, and, and, and it's true that it, I, I'm in infrastructure. So if I, just before anyone else makes the gag, I thought I would myself. Um, but I think it's very interesting because um, the process of government uh, will have us, uh, during the business case process, uh, need to list a whole series of KPIs that the design needs to, to deliver. For, so from a client point of view, it generally comes down to the efficient delivery of health services. Um, and uh, from a, from a uh, consumer's point of view, however, it has something to do with well-being and perceptions of well-being. Um, and then from a staff point of view, it's somewhere in between. And I guess the thing that we've thought about at VESPA is there's a lot of quantitative research, and I think uh, Jill enunciated it, um, that essentially one can easily peg in a KPI in a business case to say, if you design a building in a particular way, 
you're likely to have fewer people suicide in your mental health unit or you're likely to have uh, fewer incidences of infection control. So that's easy. It's the, it's the other side, the, uh, the qualitative side of things, which I, I guess is more from a perception point of view that's harder to measure. And I know there are people in this room who are endeavouring to do that, but they're an emerging field of, if you like, research methodologies that we need to tap into as a client uh, to be able to say, well, we value that research and we value what comes out of that research and, in actual fact, we need to ask for that research to happen during the course of procuring architectural services. Can you give me an example or two of what you mean by qualitative as opposed to quantitative? What what are we talking about there? So quantitative is um, we know that if you place a particular... uh, If if you place a hand-wash basin at a particular place in a room, the doctors are most likely to be able to wash their hands and therefore reduce infection rates in a a room. Um, But what I guess Jill alluded to, the Kaplan study of some 30, 40 years ago... Um, it talks about the qualitative nature of being able to see a landscape or being able to see light at the end of a corridor. It's that, I guess, that implicit knowledge that we as architects know that these things, if you do them, daylight, acoustics, tactility, um, they would inherently be human qualities that people will respond to positively and therefore have a consequence on people's perception of well-being. It's how we um, ensure that that implicit knowledge is explicit uh, and then how we teach the government as a client to value those things. Well, before I move on to the next uh, speaker, um, I guess one of the roles you have and your department has is uh, commissioning or, 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 or contracting architects and designers to work for you. What are the kind of top-line things that you look at? Since there are probably some architects here who might well be you know, sending a letter to you at some point or other, <laughs> what, should, what should they be putting into their CV? Well, um, Sophie and I were talking about this on the way in today, and, and it's fair to say that the daggers are out for me because I've changed a number of those criteria, uh, and one of which has been to um, ensure that architects... Uh, or that the value proposition back to us is that our architects are engaging with research would be one of the things. Uh, So we're asking for our architects to uh, engage as much as possible with the latest evidence that demonstrates that design actually has a particular outcome. And that is a weighted criteria that will be higher than previous experience, for example. So perhaps if we start to break down the barriers of, well... um, because you've done 10 of these before, therefore you should be the first person to get to do the number 11, that perhaps we circumvent that experience uh, criteria by putting a slightly different twist. And that, and that is one way that we're doing it. That's interesting because I would imagine hospitals and health facilities would be one of the highest uh, risk-evaluated categories of building that you could look at. Indeed it is. And, and I guess one of the... Um, uh, one of the it's it's probably the most resistant typology to architecture yeah. uh, so it's how do we create a value within the client group to value architecture as being as intrinsic as being able to put uh, to know how to put the boxes together sure sure so that's kind of a role of adv- advocacy and paul our next speaker paul katsieris of uh, katsieris origami origami um uh, unusual career, started off at the big end of town with Hassel building very, very large buildings and then scaled down to a smaller practice, but nevertheless brought the experience from that to working with various clients and advising on, on buildings, including um, health uh, facilities. In particular, I kind of wanted to uh, touch on the, the, the issue of <clears throat> how good design plays out 
in a public-private partnership sense. So we have this mechanism here in Australia where very expensive buildings get partly delivered by government, partly delivered by private sector together, working out how to deliver something that costs a billion dollars together. Do you find in your experience that there are different uh, evaluations of what good design is, depending on whether you're a private partner or you're a public partner in those kind of scenarios? Or do they come together singing Kumbaya? <laughs> well, firstly, let me commend you on the fact that you managed to get Katsuhiro Sorigami and, uh, and not Katsuhiro's orgasm. <laughs> so I thought that was fantastic. I, thank I you. Aim, aim to please. Yes, thank you. Um, look, yeah, I think, I think that hospitals, out of all architectural typologies, are possibly the most measured and, and, and possibly the most measurable. Um, they're, they're, they seem to be a typology that, um, you know, breeds measuring. And so in the PPP context, um, both, and I've, and I've worked on both, you know, the, 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 the bid phase of large PPPs and also on the assessment phase yep. of large PPPs. So what we've learned to do, Andrew, is to create a whole range of criteria to measure designs when we're working on the government uh, scrutiny phase of a PPP. And we've developed our own kind of matrices to measure the designs um, across a range of criteria, urban design criteria, interior design criteria, architectural criteria. And because the health typology is so measurable, there's a wealth of data and a wealth of, um, a wealth of scientific research behind um, evidence-based design. Mm -hmm. And so in the health typology, there is a lot of data to say that if you put patients in a better designed environment, um, patients that go in for a particular kind of operation will stay in hospital for three days less if they're, if they're in hospital for, you know, a particular operation mm -hmm. uh, than the same patients having the same operation but in a non-designed environment. Now, in a big facility like a hospital, when you multiply that three days for one particular patient by the amount of throughput uh, for a year of hospital stays, mm -hmm. it's massive. You're talking about massive efficiencies, massive money. That's a mechanistic kind of approach, but the patient outcomes are there. You know, the, the studies are there. Is there also, in a sense, a kind of symbolic uh, role for architecture as well? In the, in historically, a, a building has had a, a kind of significant symbolism, so that to say that you invest in your health facilities, you don't put it, you don't tuck it away out of the middle of nowhere, you put it in a, in a main site and you say, we we think this is important. Is, is that possible to measure as a design kind of quality? I think that goes back to what Stefano was saying. I think there's research now to try to measure those qualitative uh, aspects, the quantitative aspects about how long patients stay, mm -hmm. about um, how much less medicine patients need in a post-operative um, case. All of those quanti quantifiable data can be measured this, this area that Stefano mentioned that you've now questioned me on is very new. Mm -hmm. um, so there aren't very strong measurement systems. Um, the, the new Bendigo Hospital, which has just been completed, that we've consulted on, um, they have engaged the RMIT. Uh, so the RMIT are doing now a whole batch of research because they measured some particular wards in the old Bendigo Hospital, mm. and they're going to be measuring them now with the new Bendigo Hospital. Mm. We'll have that data out in about six months' time. Great question, okay. but the data doesn't exist yet. Uh -huh. Could I just add something to that? Sorry, Andrew. Is that I think government more and more are looking is looking for joined up thinking. So it's 
in a sense, it's a, it's a, a confection to think of the hospital as just an island in the urban realm. That in actual fact, we're better off thinking about the hospital and housing, the hospital and sport and rec, the hospital and the school, the hospital and the university. Uh, and I think that that's the push that we'll be going to, towards in the department. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so I'll move to our third speaker, Sophie Patisis, who's uh, been the principal advisor to the OVGA for quite a few years, uh, has seen a few government architects come and go. You've been there a long time, which is great. Bring a lot of knowledge with you along the way. I want to go back to, uh, in a sense, a l- revisiting what Paul just said in relation to measuring over time and ask a question around um, evaluation over time, like post-occupancy evaluation. Is that something that OVGA has been able to uh, be part of in relation to hospitals, or is that still not happening in hospitals? Uh, I would say that it's something that we're promoting as an idea within our office. Um, and I think in the education space, for instance, um, so I'm sort of already preempting a bit of discussion in the uh, education space, um, we've definitely initiated an exercise where we've said, look, we'll, we'll help you with that because there are some things that we look for that you may not necessarily be looking for in existing methodologies. Um, and it just spoke... Such, such as? Well... Uh, there's an interesting concept, I think, that, um, that the, you know, Paul and um, Stefano have just touched on, which is about um, delight, actually. Um, and it's something about the civic nature and the role and the symbolic role that a, um, that a building might play in its context. Right. And there's a responsibility there about connecting back to the community and connecting back to place that's really, really important. Um, and so I think that if we can play a role in actually expanding definitions and really expanding the way people think about buildings and their role in a community and in a place, I think we would have done a pretty good job. So, Fantastic. So we might yeah. at some point or other have the word delight on an evaluation criteria. Well, it's something that's so hard <laughs> to... Yeah, and we did, actually. For, so I'll go into the transport space now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we did speak about delight. So, um, okay. Yeah. Believe it or not, that's ten minutes up, so we've got to move yeah. on to the next one quickly. Jill, you're up. I'm up. Okay. Um, the, the next big header that we've got is education and I might um, introduce both Richard Leonard and Kirsten together, so we've introduced you up front. Um, Richard's an architect and a director of Hayball, one of Melbourne's um, very busy and big practices. Um, He's internationally recognised as an expert in helping schools integrate contemporary teaching and learning philosophies into creative responses. He's, um, he's a member of the Learning Environments Applied Research Network, which is a very important role. Kirsten is a principal of Kirsten Thompson Architects. She is a professor of design in architecture at Victoria University, Wellington, and adjunct professor at RMIT and Monash. She's also a member, one of our members of our design review panel, as is Paul, actually, which we didn't mention earlier. Um, so now I've introduced you both. We've only got two, two um, participants here, but sounds like Sophie might want to add a few, um, <laughs> a few comments to there as well. Um, so perhaps, perhaps I'll, I'll start with just perhaps a question for Richard. What is considered good design in education and are there any emerging trends that, um, that our community needs to know about? Um, it's, look, it's a really tough question, Jill, in that I think that um, what, what's happening at the moment is that with the changes in contemporary education, that 
the changes are really leading the, um, the line in design. Design's really responding to a fairly dynamic environment. And I think if I could just divert from that question at the moment, because I think from an education point of view, that the figures are just staggering, and, and you know, it's kind of worth uh, just understanding what the figures in education are. In Australia, and this is from the 2016 uh, census, there were 3.7 million students in primary and secondary education. There was a million students in tertiary education, 400,000 uh, teachers in primary and secondary and another 100,000 in, uh, in tertiary as, as staff. Um, so that's a massive thing. You know, that's a quarter of the population is being put through an education system. And the education system itself, of course, is uh, Australia's biggest export at the moment. So, you know, now Australia is riding on the teacher's back in terms of exports. So it's a really important thing. So I think to have design that is responding to, to this, and, you know, I think um, it was great that we're talking about all of these facilities. The common theme is they're all public facilities. Mm. Um, to be able to design and to design well is a fundamental issue. And the last point I would make is that we don't know precisely at the moment how to measure good design in education. There is a, a lot of research out there. Not much of it is good research. The University of, of Melbourne, we've talked about the LEARN network uh, based at the university. The University of Melbourne has two significant uh, research projects at the moment, one being uh, evaluating 21st century learning environments, which is about three years through a four-year program. And the other one, which is about the biggest, I understand it's the biggest um, education research project in Australia at the moment, which is uh, innovative learning environments and teacher change. And both of those are really focusing on, focusing on a central issue of what works and what doesn't work. So hopefully, Jill, hopefully it will answer that, that question. Um, Kirsten, uh, I mean, one of the interesting issues when you get architects and educators in the room together is there's always this slight, um, not exactly a battle, but a, a kind of a position from the architects that the spatial experience is huge and then there's that, that position from the educators that it's actually the pedagogical approach that's really huge. And I think usually in most, most cases I've been in that argument, we end up deciding they're both quite important, even <laughs> though we obviously take our own position on it. What, um, what do you think, um, you're obviously an architect, so you take a, a particular position, but you have to understand pedagogy when you're designing a school. Yeah. What do you think are the, the good design elements associated with education? Mm. Well, I think it's, it's going to be a recurring theme. The really easy things to measure, like you know the performance of a space in terms of its climate and light, it's a no-brainer. We know how to do that that stuff, although we are sweating under this roof tonight, so maybe temperature's a tricky one, but... Um, we'll all be but in hospital. I, but it, it, thank yeah. God for you, Stefano. <laughs> it's always the things that are hardest to measure that I find the most interesting things that we as architects can offer to that conversation with students and their teachers. And I, I, there's a, also another conundrum to this, which is that on the one hand, I'm always fascinated how space has an openness to it so that it can be appropriated and used for a multitude of purposes, some of which are not predictable. And on the other hand, a lot of research in design is trying to predict certain behaviours that 
that will come out of certain spatial formulations. And I think that's, that is a real complexity that's a hard one to resolve. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I've seen old classrooms that on the one hand are very cellular so they're seen as the bad old days and that's not what we want now on the other hand they have a loftiness a light and air that is harder to get in newer builds so even that question of old and new hospitals that you mentioned before I think sometimes we mistake what is a design intervention a spatial intervention that's changed people's perceptions or experiences as opposed to say old and new sometimes you can give people a crap but new building and they feel valuable but it might not be as good as an older one, but in terms of maintenance, it's not up to scratch. So these are some of the things that we find you have to tease out in discussions with schools. Um, yeah. Kirsten, that that Kirsten, probably brings up the issue of budget, possibly, but well, sounds like um, Richard's got a question. A nasty word. Nothing I've turned off yet. Um, can I borrow yours? Kirsten raised a, a really good point in that... Um, the things that you measure, a lot of them are really quite easy. The things that we're trying to measure in education are actually the relational, you know, the relationships between students and staff. And, and that outside is the... and inside and your connection to that. Yeah, it's not NAPLAN or it's not exams. You know, there's a lot of universities, particularly some of the leading universities in the States, are now really not working off marks. They're working off, uh, you know, other measures of student engagement and, you know, project-based work. I think the other thing that you, you've really touched on here is the thing about architecture is that architecture encloses behaviours. Mm. It doesn't just, in education, enclose space. Mm. So really, you know, it, it's touching on this really interesting dynamic and Kirsten and I were just talking um, before we came in tonight about, you know, how some teachers are really talking about a class changes, you know, exactly the same class in exactly the same space with exactly the same teacher will be different before lunch as it is after lunch. Mm. You know, there's this really interesting and challenging dynamic that as a designer you do have to engage with and address in some way. How how do you yeah, well, address so that? How, how you measure what the consequence of the space is on people's behaviour is, is a really tricky one. And so uh, I think to a lot of the research on education we see, um, I must say as a designer, it's quite complex and in sometimes you just want this 10-point, bullet-point, quick snapshot takeaway lessons. And I think some of that could come from anecdotes. So one of the things we realise is we don't do enough um, uh, post-occupancy surveys and even if it's gathering anecdotes, because I think if we gathered enough anecdotes, um, not to undervalue those as a source of knowledge or insight into spaces, if enough anecdote is telling you certain kinds of things, then maybe that's as good as some of the more intensive and more systematic forms of research. I don't know if I answered your question, actually, but... Yeah. You, you took the journey. That's okay. the important thing. It's a tough <laughs> it was one. A I don't learning think there experience, is... wasn't it? So yeah. I might just call Sophie in, actually, because she mentioned the post-occupancy reviews of education. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like, I think... Um, um, where's David? David. Um, well, I, I was really just thinking, um, you know, in response to Kirsten's comment, there is a very interesting one that really it's anecdotal. It's the users. This is actually community input... How do, we, yeah. how do we build or do we just do post-occupancy reviews of this building needs maintenance? Well, I think, Jill, that's, that's a really interesting question because 
the way we're trying to build a position within government and with our client um, within government is actually to to build a case for um, an, a bigger understanding of what is meant by good design. And I think you've touched on a really important point, Kirsten, because we've realised that actually there's data, there's figures, there's numbers, but actually the case studies, the, the, the idea of actually um, taking people through a journey... Um, and actually, we can do that. We can actually have... We've got a bit of longitudinal experience in, uh, with um, buildings and building outcomes, and we can so, really talk to that. So, I mean, that raises the issue of case studies, and I guess there's a really good question for the two of you. Um, what are great examples are... And no, Richard, you're not allowed to put yours in, and Kirsten, you're not allowed to put yours in. What are the great examples of, of leading education design? Um, no, but, you can abstain uh, from the question if you want. I'll, I'll give you two quick examples, and it's at both ends of the field. And, and one will sort of put it in perspective very quickly. Um, many years ago, I had this really interesting discussion over a, um, a function with the then Minister for Education, uh, Bronwyn Pike. And she was an ex-teacher. And she made the point that the most terrifying day of her life was the first day that she started teaching. And they sent her down the back of, um, you know, Block D and Room 27, and they said, go down there at 9 o'clock and don't come out till 3.30. And, you know, th that was the old days of education, and that's what so we're coming from and dealing with as des designers. So I will use another example that we did do a post-occupancy uh, evaluation on uh, recently, and it was a really good example at the opposite end of the scale of contemporary environments but having an impact and, you know, these are, these are just sort of takeouts from uh, some of the teachers and the students. And the teachers were saying, um, you know, what we're getting from this is it was frightening at the beginning, but we, we now we've, we've got into it and we've now found our mojo for teaching. You know, we've found our love of teaching. Um, we're relating better to the students. The students are, be are relating better to each other. We're now finding that instead of cooperating with students, we're collaborating. Mm -hmm. You know, so there were all of these things that, you know, it's probably coming back to the research issue. Um, they're not measurable, mm -hmm. but they're meaningful and they're authentic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where, you know, I took great uh, joy out of this mm -hmm. because you could tell space makes a difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the only thing I'd add to that is that the acknowledgement of how instrumental people are in that practising of space, whether you're a student or a teacher, um, the architecture is not enough. It's obviously... And half of the battles we have is... Um, is people understanding or getting the right expectations around how they're going to have to act as teachers, the sorts of programs and changes they might have to implement to make the best of these of yep. these things. So, That's a really yeah. great point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think our time's up on education and I'm going to hand back to Andrew who uh, is going to interrogate public space. Yes. Um, Which one works, that one? Public space. Well, in a funny way, we've 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 gone from um, an incredibly measured area of health um, to a, a, a very measured area in education, to an area where I wonder whether there's a similar amount of of measurement going on in public space, um, and how one would go about doing that. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Andrew uh, Nitsky, who is a landscape architect, is manager, precinct and maritime planning at Parts Victoria. Um, Adam, let's start with you. Uh, um, well, how do you measure um, public space? Well, Parks Vic, where, where I work, uh, there's a lot of 
visitor modelling, visitor satisfaction surveying that we do, and we get an understanding of how many people use spaces and, and what their, their uh, response to that is. And, I mean, apart from finding out that it's too hot and there's too many flies and the toilets need cleaning, which is the bulk of the feedback we get, um, <laughs> we do find out some useful data that then feeds back into our, into our planning processes. So that's helpful. Uh, but in terms of the, the idea of um, design being measurable, I think that's a, a, a question I've sort of thought hard on. And there's a, there's a real spectrum of design. It's a very broad term, really, from as we were mentioning before, the very functional sort of uh, performative end of, the, end of design through uh, this, this middle of the spectrum where uh, things get a little more complicated to the other end where we, um, I think we're dealing with much more complex concepts and ideas and it might be as much to do about the interplay between the built things... Uh, whether it's a landscape or a piece of architecture, and people. And so they can have different uh, experiential outcomes uh, and they're really difficult to measure. So uh, you, know, you can have, have projects that are quite beautiful and dealing with aesthetics uh, and the qualitative aspects. Uh, even some landscapes often have sort of spiritual connotations for some people. So that sort of stuff I find is, uh, is really difficult to, to measure. One of, the, one of the kind of background questions that kind of like relates to all these subjects is, ar- is around good design for who or for what uh, purpose. Um, and one of the interesting things when it comes to parks or when it comes to nature is the balance between what's good for us as humans and what might be good for animals and other species. Are you able to formally take into consideration when assessing a design in a natural environment? It might not be as good for us and for our, or for the public, but the animals will love it. Can you, can you make those kind of discretions or, or, or do you have to always tie it back to the value, what's good design for humans? Uh, good question. There's, um, so there's a piece of work that Parks Vic did uh, probably three years ago now where I think it was called Valuing Victoria's Parks. And what it did is it, it looked at a quite a dry economic sort of perspective on what the value of parks are. And they go to its... Parks values as uh, for conservation, as water catchments, as uh, protection of our coastlines with sea level rise, and they put some quantitative uh, figures around what the value of that is to society. So I think that's that's one uh, way in which we've done it. But in terms of the design process, and when we work through that, we're constantly measuring the influence or the impact of the design ideas on the natural landscape. We're doing environmental risk assessments, we're running cultural assessments and quite often that's on ground work to actually assess whether or not the design has a positive or a negative impact. Right, right. right. Um, the, other, the other element too that I'd mention is I think where we may not know it but we're continuously sort of measuring design in our own way when we go out and consult with the community so most of our projects will have a fairly... Uh, comprehensive engagement program attached to them. project I worked on down on the Shipwreck Coast, we went back to the community three, four, five times with strategic ideas around that project yeah. and they were testing us against what we said we were going to, we were trying to do and holding us to account to that. So uh, I think engagement shouldn't be underestimated as a really strong design measuring tool as well. For sure, for sure. Um, Kirsten Barr is Director of Aspect Studios, also a landscape architect. Um, 
one, again, one of the kind of like uh, recurrent uh, 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 set of words uh, that we've been looking at is around post-occupancy evaluation, the idea of, you know, what was good then and is it good now. In a funny way, you might almost say that landscape architects have to deal with the inverse of that, which is future occupancy, because so much of what you do has a time Code, coding in it somehow that, that you don't you don't open a, a, a piece of landscape architecture and say there it is finished. It's one of the kind of like finding principles that it's got time involved. How does that impact your assessment of of how you measure good design in a temporal sense? I'm not sure I know, but <laughs> <laughs> I have been thinking about three examples that may touch on the issue of time. Mm-hmm. And, and the issue of measuring good public space and um, in terms of thinking about tonight's thing. And the first one is um, people have been measuring public life and public open space since, well, I don't know, early, 19, early 20th century, without a doubt, yep. um, because you know, a lot of public spaces were part of the sort of the planning commission movement and the land use planning movement. Mm-hmm. So when you think about Melbourne... Um, you know, one of the measurable techniques that planners use is, and it's been in policy for a fairly long time, is everyone should have the right or have access to a public open space within 400 metres of their home. It's a classic one. No one knows where it comes from. It comes from the sporting codes of London somewhere, apparently. It's got right. some strange ways it, it arrived in, in Melbourne. Yeah. It's a measurable device. You can quantify it. You can measure it. Um, but when it first started, people probably didn't realise the actual impact it would have on Melbourne's livability, mm-hmm. um, green amenity um, and, um, I suppose, equity of open space. But now when we look at it, we have critiques of it being too functional, too provisional-related, too much about recreation provision. But when you look at it now and you look at the suburbs, we have greatly... You know, the life of those suburbs has greatly had an advantage now that those parks have grown up they are a significant contribution to public life. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. the trees first went in, I'm sure everyone thought it looked, you know, a scrubby piece of land and we said, not much value. Mm. And now it's an incredible value. Although on that point, it's quite interesting, there was uh, some recent research done around the size of a park and the, uh, the, the capacity for a, a, the size of a park to engender people to go out walking, that they would go out to a big park more than a little pocket park. So it's kind of interesting because when you think of pocket parks dotted everywhere, you think that's a great idea. But then maybe actually the better idea is to do one park that's a bit further away, but it's of a size and scale that will actually make people go and take their dog out for a walk. But then we fall in the trap by saying good parks are only parks that people visit. What if the park is maintaining a remnant river red gum and contributing to the amenity and biodiversity of a street? Maybe no one goes there, but it still contributes significantly to that area. And um, if I can go on, that <laughs> another fourteen seconds okay, at least. I'm going to roll. Um, yeah, we need time. <laughs> you've, got, you've got four lots of them. Um, Just looking over here. Okay, right. I'll, do, I'll, I'll roll in a quick one because everyone loves talking about this one, and I think it's a good one to talk to you about tonight. The High Line. Yes. I hate talking about the High Line. It's yes. over talked. We all know but, what the High but Line. But we all know what the High Line is. I don't have to say anything. Yes. The issue there with measure and time. Yeah. When it first started, it was all about community engagement. Um, um, it was about how, the, how a bottom-up process could yep. deliver a public realm. Yep. Now, after post-occupancy assessment, evaluation and review, some people are now saying, and the evidence suggests, it is not what it 
necessarily it hasn't necessarily been the most public yes. of public open spaces mm-hmm. and it's actually created gentrification real estate speculation and actual potentially socially social exclusion yeah. so on what value on a financial value it has been significantly successful on a social inclusion measure Perhaps not so. Trust you to bring a really thorny socio-economic <laughs> cultural subject into three seconds. <laughs> um, Bronwyn Hamilton is uh, is also at the uh, OVGA. She uh, leads the uh, design review panel, um, and therefore you have a lot of experience of of dealing with projects that come in, and you have to make an assessment or work with other people to make an assessment in the realms of public space. What tends to be the things that mark things up like this is excellent and what are the things that tend to mark things down is what are you doing in that context? Um, really good question Andrew. We are, we are up to 262 um, reviews at last count. Um, what, what that means is that there's a quantum of evidence um, to be extracted about what the common themes about um, how people measure they're all sorts of designs, not just public spaces. But um, I think what's important is that we do measure and that we use that measure, whatever it is, for evidence-based policy Um, and that we use those measures about high-quality design to have high aspirations um, for our public spaces. So, for example, I know there was um, some measurement in the City of Melbourne some time ago about the distribution of coffee shops um, in the central city and uh, it was seen as a measure of success that there were now a lot of coffee shops. (laughs) Um, I would argue that um, our measurement and and evidence-based policy around public spaces needs to be tailored um, to counteract the negative impacts of densification um, and that we're asking a lot more from our public space than we ever have before. Are you Um, saying less coffee shops? (laughs) I'm saying more frappe. (laughs) Um, What what tends to be the things that that, that genuinely um, people run into trouble with that they just haven't considered properly? Um, uh, High-quality design and raising the aspirations. That's a short answer, Jill. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you saw that. Yeah, I saw uh, that. <laughs> okay, all right. We'll leave it as a short answer. We'll come back to that. Oh, of course, we won't. But, yes, maybe we will. Next up, you're, you're, um, okay, you are Mikey. talking about transport. All right. So the, our next header topic is the topic of transport. And um, we've got two fantastic experts here to um, interrogate this particular topic. Kate Hardwick is the Urban Integration and Design Manager of the Melbourne Metro Rail Authority. She's worked as a city planner, um, as a consultant for state and local government in in both Australia and the UK. And Cameron Ritter is a principal of Grimshaw Architects. He worked on the reference design for the new Metro Tunnel project in Melbourne. Um, He's done a lot of transport work. We've had a lot to do with Cameron in our design review processes and um, and he's worked in Auckland, Los Angeles, etc. Cameron's also a member of our Victorian design review panel as well. Now I might start with Kate um, because Melbourne Metro is a, a huge thing that we're all very excited about I think in Melbourne. Um, it's a completely city shaping, city changing project how does the idea of measuring good design come into your project? Um, I think one of the um, most difficult things 
to measure. So obviously in terms of measuring design, we have um, you know, lots of elements of design in terms of structural and civil and all of those kind of um, uh, exper- those disciplines that are very easy to measure. But I think one of the, the biggest challenges that we have is I think we've, we've talked about, you know, these are all public buildings and make a public contribution. Um, transport makes a really significant contribution. I think it's in the order of 30% of the land area of Melbourne. Um, and increasingly that needs to be seen as not just a one-dimensional space, that it actually needs to be a much more, um, a much more public and usable space and how we can uh, really uh, maximise civic life in those spaces. So I think that's probably one of the biggest design um, or one of the biggest challenges that we have in evaluating and measuring good design. I think one of the other things too is... The time, while landscape architects need time, um, you know, this infrastructure that we're creating is there for 100 years um, and that's, you know, it's a city-shaping project and the design choices that we make now will be affecting future generations and uh, we really need to think about um, how we, what good design looks like now in terms of um, uh, what it might look like for generations in the future. Um, I was, I see Donald Bates is here and we had a conversation when we were talking, doing the planning um, for around Federation Square and in the city and um, I think we had a conversation about, you know, uh, the space that they designed for Federation Square is now being owned and used by the public in ways that they never imagined but that shows the quality of the design, that that flexible space can be taken in as part of, into people's lives um, and, and made their own. And I think that's probably um, the biggest challenge that we have in terms of measuring and buying good design and transport. You don't quite always know what you're getting. And, and you may be designing it's that issue of flexibility and people will, will appropriate in a way that maybe you did not really foresee that they might. Yeah, that's right. And even something as, um, you know, the idea of gender is evolving and changing and so where we might have provided male and female amenities, you know, what does that look like in the future? How do we cater for a sort of a more spectrum approach uh, to gender? And, you know, social changes over 100 years, there'll be lots and um, how we factor that into buying good design now to influence generations is uh, a very interesting challenge. Mm. Cameron, you've worked on um, both... Rail, rail projects like the Metro, um, both here in Australia and, um, and internationally as well. And then you're also involved in some of our level crossing removal projects, which is a slightly different beast, I think. Um, and each, each of which, though, um, has that incredible civic impact that Kate talked about. Um, what, what do you do? What does Grimshaw do as a, as a, um, as a design-led Focus to actually address presumably your own principles of what makes a good transport project. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question because I think it comes to um, the key element of of the initial question: is good design measurable? And it's whether we think about something retrospectively or prospectively. And I guess in a lot of the space that I've worked with Kate uh, over the last couple of years has been in the prospective space. We can measure a lot of things, you know, outcomes when something's built. Uh, so uh, that that is a lot of our work as, as a design practice is looking at the design in that in that way in, into the future, and of course, learning from things that come in the past. Um, for public transport or transport, which I think it really should be called because it, it is about uh, liberation of the, of the city and, and reducing 
reducing the negative effects of, of cars throughout the city, but also increasing our connectivity to each other, to our work, to home, to our loved ones, to the various things and that we want to do. Adding bicycles to the mix. Adding bicycles a... into the mix and other things, walking, walkability, you know, um, and that it, it touches in that ground between uh, perhaps a building and, and uh, you know, the landscape and the urban design elements of it. Um, but I think that probably one of the big challenges that we have in, in the, the sort of rail transport space is encouraging people out of vehicles because they've got a very comfortable, cushy world in there. Um, so the customer experience and providing uh, you know, a great customer experience and, and uh, a frequent service and those kind of elements are really important from us as a designer what is that great experience and uh, I see some colleagues in the room that we work with on this but uh, you know, it, it's a, it's an, a lot of it is intangible. So I wonder if that's, that is one of those very real measurables like how many, how many people, I know that when, when um, some of the level crossings were being um, anticipated um, there was a judgement about how many people arrived at the station from the south, from the north from the east and from the west, did they arrive on foot, did they drive, etc. And that dealt with an existing condition. And then you obviously have to anticipate, once you separate the road from the rail, will those behaviours change? Will people um, who didn't go to that station, who drove to the next one because they kind of couldn't get across the level crossing, <laughs> you know, what is the impact of that going to be? But that seems like it's quite a measurable proposition. You know, you, you will be able to say, how many people are walking that didn't walk a year ago or how many people um, have stopped driving to their next station because we've connected the buses really well or something like that. And with transport especially, I think we talk about post-occupancy surveys. I think if people are upset with transport, they'll take to social media and let everyone know about it. Uh, so I Very think that there's a real, a real opportunity there and particularly as more journeys will be made... Um, by using smartphones and online planning and things like that, being able to capture much richer um, real-time data uh, and people's experiences will help feed into the design process going forward as we know more and more about what people value. Um, we know that when we put images online, our, the social media traffic goes crazy. People want to uh, engage with those kind of things. So certainly that's stations. got a big role for... Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, that's really um, a part of... The transport is, is that it touches so many millions of people yep. and they use it so a lot of people have an opinion on it because you know, it affects their daily, daily life. Day stuff, yep. um, but there are also parts, a major project like uh, Metro Tunnel is part, is part of our, um, our city psyche in a way and, and so trying to build um, something that people can be proud of and love uh, is, is a really complex thing to measure. I think there are definitely things that we can measure like... Uh, I've read you know, reports about if you put a, a couple of trees out the front of a station, you reduce um, crime in the area. Like they can, there's some very small interventions that can be done, but uh, on those larger, larger scale ones, how, how do we represent you know as much as we can the whole community? There, there's, um, I mean, one of the per perplexities, if that's a word, um, that I've noticed with the Caulfield to Dandenong engagement that our officers had is the focus on the... And Kirsten will know, know this... The, the focus on the number of car parks needed for stations is absolutely unbelievable. And um, one hopes, perhaps, that over time, that number of car parks, which has replaced what we've got now, that, that the 
the kind of celebration of the transport system as a, as a great way of getting around will actually hopefully start people not needing those car parks. And in, in certainly in the Caulfield to Dandenong instance, maybe those car parks can be turned into public open space and they'll turn into that, that slightly different asset. And there's good have. thinking now in terms of it might be a car park now, but thinking about, well, what if that is a building? What if that is a public space? And so making sure that we're not designing out that flexibility in the future, which is very much part of the thinking that goes on in transport at the moment. So it's actually not precluding a future for that site. Okay, we've got 10 seconds to go. <laughs> Anyone want to make a grand statement? I won't make a grand statement, but I think that just coming back to the like process, which was mentioned before, and that that's something that we're seeing a lot of is the is how um, how process is using in kind of evaluating or, or procuring uh, good design. Now it's it has its foibles like anything else, but um, it, a, a methodology that that goes through. So design review obviously is a clear element of that. At least it's there. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Okay, everyone's still standing, which is fabulous. Okay. Um, Andrew is going to talk about neighbourhoods. Indeed. We seem to have gone from individual buildings to landscapes to how these places are networked together <coughs> by transport. And when I see neighbourhoods, I guess what I'm thinking here is kind of almost demographics and how we think about the inner city neighbourhood, the middle suburb and the outer suburb, and what defines good design in each of these cases. Um, Dan Brady, you uh, lead design at Development Victoria, um, and I'm going to try and paraphrase, and I'll probably get horribly wrong, but in a sense, uh, Development Victoria is a public body that has a responsibility to the people of Victoria, but it also interfaces with the development community and to some extent with the market. Um, So therefore, going back to this kind of perennial question, good design for who? Would it be fair to say that your role is to sort of find the, the sweet spot, the, meet, the meeting spot between what the kind of public's expectation of development should be and where the market wants to take uh, the neighbourhood? Um, mm, good question. <laughs> I'll answer this personally rather than on behalf of DV. Um, I think what I'm trying to do there, not I think, I know what I'm trying to do there, is less protect against what the development industry is doing, but more for the public benefit. And the question around good design that I'm interested to bring to the development space is to move it from a process-driven thing, particularly with... um, with the sites we work on and the modes that have that have been practiced before where it's driven a lot by statistical processes whereas good design to me is a creative process and that creative process to borrow from Alan Fletcher um, it's where one plus one equals three you know it's the classic thing you build on an idea to make a better idea Um, my concern with when we measure good design, particularly in, you know, let's, let's say housing, because we work a great deal in housing. You measure good design once it's complete. I think you break that equation back down to kind of one plus one equals two. Um, I'm not a fan at all of empirical standards. So I'm, I'm not a fan of the better apartment design standards, for instance. And 
I don't mean to get lynched by my colleagues here who <laughs> may have been part of that, but I don't believe a balcony is two metres deep, and that's the rule. Um, that, these, that all these things need to be questioned and we need to give space to our design teams to question the process a bit more. So, so when we're engaging architects, the, the first thing that we try and do is rather than lead them down the line of, here's a site, they very much go into a kind of automated process to stack the thing up to get the yield to work to the standards rather than questioning all of the questions put in front of them. But would you say that, um, to, to uh, be devil's advocate in this regard, that um, the standards were, in a sense, were only kind of like developed out of the demonstrable kind of failure of the non-standardized delivery of apartments to do the job of delivering good design? In other words, we wouldn't want standards if what we already had was great design. So therefore, the question is, what other means do you have to do what used to happen before standards if you get rid of standards? Yeah, um... This is this is something that that yeah that that we disagree on. So it's kind of that's good interesting point in the panel discussion because we're because we're going to fight a bit about this. <laughs> but I think it's um, well. One thing is that I don't have the answer to the question where where the standards are really important is there's a lot of bad designers out there. Um, but what I'm finding is when I'm engaging a lot of the good designers and there's a few here is rather than the first conversation opens when we consider a project to be how they can think outside of the box, we're talking immediately about how we can meet the standards. Straight away, it's the first point. Um, And I know those standards have a particular bearing, um, but the problem then comes for once you go in for planning. Um, There was a great sketch that I saw in one council. There were these two little townhouses designed by John Wardle, and I find the planning file of it, and John had designed the two facades to the street to be completely blank, beautiful buildings, and in Byro sketch from the planner, they'd drawn in some windows because you need to activate the street. But the design was beautiful. It got built as a, as a, as a, as a blank frontage. There's an example where it, you know, it wouldn't meet any council policy or standards, but it met good design. Sure, okay. Well, I think maybe we'll pull immediately into the fray. Uh, Billy Giles Corty, Director of Urban Futures Enabling Capability Platform uh, at RMIT. Um, so I've got to channel uh, Tony Blair here and say, is there a middle way between the standards that you might apply to housing to create good housing and getting rid of them and perhaps going back to a kind of market-driven model without standards that had its own consequences? Is there a middle ground, or what do you think about the role of standards? Uh, I think we've got market failure. So, no, I don't think that's the way to go. I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that good designers could do better than we're doing, but we have market failure. It's interesting to me, actually, what you said, Andrew, that when we're talking about communities, we talk about outer, middle, inner, and as if the people on the outer don't deserve to have well-designed neighbourhoods that actually that they can enjoy what we do in the inner city is to walk. You know, Hoddle, when you look at him he came back now and saw the success of the design of his street networks and the flexibility and the opportunities that it's given to, to create a better city, a very livable city, I don't think that we'll be saying the same thing about people living on the fringe. So I sort of think about the communities of the, those who are on the outer suburban area who, are, who have no choice because of the way we've designed our communities but to drive. They don't have a choice. They can't walk anywhere. They can't cycle anywhere. There's no cycle paths, sorry, transport. Um, 
they, you know, they, and all the shops are so spread out because we've designed them that way that they go to the big shopping centres which are designed for the car. So I think what I'm trying to do for this is keep people out of Stephanus hospitals because that's what we do in health. My job, I'm a, actually a public health academic and so the, the, the work that we do in design is incredibly important from a health perspective. We have rising levels of chronic disease. We have um, growing levels of um, diabetes. These are all preventable diseases and they are partly related to even the little simple thing of walking. So I, I sort of worry, then we, let, we say we'll leave it to the market. I, I just wrote a book chapter with um, London, at the London School of Economics, um, Ricky Burdett, who's the yes. professor of cities. And, you know, I said that we really need, like, um, you know, in health, we write, people have to sign the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Yep. And my sense is that we almost need the same. I said that. I thought he would tell me to take it out of my book chapter. But he didn't. He said, no, he said, put it in there, because people are causing harm through bad design. So I think we can measure good design. I, I do measure at the macro level. I'm not doing the really fine grain measurement. But even at the fine grain, the, the macro level, we are not designing neighbourhoods that maximise the health benefits. And that is, a, I think, a policy failure of us. So I, I'm in favour of tighter, tighter design guidelines, evidence-based tighter design guidelines that will produce, I think, a better result for the average person. I want to quickly bring in something that we haven't talked about yet, um, but I think is very important in, the, in, in talking about good design, and, and I guess it's to do with resilience and climate change. Um, it's, it's in this, on the scale of the city, obviously, it's one of the most significant things to deal with. In terms of the department, or, um, do, do you have an active position in terms of how you need to do things differently in acknowledging that we may have some significant problems to deal with around heat island effect, around raising rising sea levels around a whole bunch of different kind of climate-related things. Has that, has that kind of um, reached the department yet in terms of key decision-making? As far as key decision-making, probably not at the moment. I mean, our, our main focus at the moment is to address the affordability issue through housing, um, still always whilst, you know, clearly considering the sustainability impact, but the focus is on the affordability question and this is where we fully support the work that Billy's doing and we work with her colleagues is on the health impacts because the, the, the affordability and it does tie into the sustainability question too is about creating more healthy places for people too um, and less so about the object itself less so about the building and more about the setting and what's on offer there Sure, okay I'm going to finish with one last question uh, to you, Billy. Um, if you uh, had a magic wand and you were able to create a city that was more livable along the lines that you believe they need, it, it should be, what are two or three of the key things that might help that be delivered? Uh, well, walkable urbanism on the fringe as well. I think we can achieve that. I think good design will actually give us the... It will help sell the concept. I think when we're building our buildings on the fringe at the moment, they are small lots large houses, roofs touching one another, no green space, that's not going to produce a good outcome for anyone in terms of resilience or the people who live there. So to me, walkable urbanism, I think I'd love to have a design competition about how you could achieve that in a way that's making money for the market, acceptable to the community. I don't buy the fact that people want, don't, you know, that's what they want. They don't want. You, there was a study that just came out just the other day. 87% of people 
young people want to live in a walkable neighbourhood. 66% of people living in low suburban areas also want to live in walkable communities. So to me, my challenge, and I know it's, I'm thinking about the structure, but it also comes to the housing and, and everything else. It, it, it's design across every element. It's getting the green space right. It's getting the, it's getting the housing right. It's getting the urban design right. So I think design is incredibly important and um, to me, I guess my number one would be the walkable urbanism with access to green space. I do like to challenge the idea of, um, like you, we did the study that showed that um, living within 400 metres of a public open space in, in Victoria does not increase mental health and doesn't increase, improve mental health and it doesn't improve um, physical activity. And the reasons why is because most of the spaces that have been developed here are so small. In, in Perth it does actually, for living within 400 metres, but they're bigger. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, evidences can be important, and, I, and I, don't, I don't want it to be prescriptive, but I think good design that is evidence-based could actually produce a better outcome and all the things that we've been talking about, sustainable, healthy, better communities that are going to service and, for the market, make more money. You know, I think there's an, there's an economic argument which I think we can put forward to. Okay, thank you very much. Well, wow, that was very fast, and... Uh, <laughs> And now there's a line item here. It says five minutes where Jill and I sum it all up. <laughs> oh, I guess, um, I mean, I, thought, I think the interesting question about the very last discussion was, um, was the question of whether we should try to measure design and that design is actually done well by those who are good designers. And I, I do have to support Andrew's comments and Billy's comments that you don't need. You probably don't need standards if we're all highly qualified, highly skillful, and actually work to a set of principles. And Cameron called up a set of principles by which Grimshaw actually attend to when they're working in transport projects. And one would hope that all architects actually have their own set of good design principles that you actually attend to when you're designing something. Mm-hmm. And and. And, and while there is this performance judgment, obviously, is this balcony big enough? It doesn't, I agree, you know, to specify is two metres the right amount, but then the problem is when it's not specified and most of what we see is 800 millimetres, then that's a problem. So I guess it's what is the balance between um, our profession, our designers, our... Um, our the team that actually produces um, what we occupy, what we live in, the places we go to to get well, the places we go to to get educated. What are the principles upon which we base our design approach? And I think a lot of those things have been discussed today. Yeah. I think that one of the interesting things to try and as, a, as an overall kind of uh, consideration is that we enter into these conversations around housing and education and health um, somehow with an implied idea that we're still in the 50s um, and that there's a certain paradigm of democratic uh, city-making that applies. And yet at the same time, you know, we know that we're not. We know that the economic rationale of kind of neoliberalism has, uh, its tentacles have gone, gone through all of our lives and, and how the cities are built as part of that. And so for me, I always come to these events wondering, okay, well, in an ideal world where we do have a supportive government and we all pay our taxes and it's a lovely democracy, um, this is how we could do things. But what happens when we have this increasing erosion of, of those kind of um, pillars of, of, of kind of, of, of civic life? Uh, and so therefore, it seems to me almost like the, this session could be paralleled, paralleled with another session where, in fact, we actually have 
the development community, where we have policymakers and politicians who arguably, um, I can say this because I'm not paid by them, uh, maybe have a cycle of four years uh, to worry about and therefore the considerations may not be stretching to the 30-year spectrum of a building. Um, but it seems to me that th there are things that designers can do and do do, and we've heard a lot of that tonight, um, around how to, how to do good design, how to measure good design, and then go on to do it again. Uh, but without the other side of the puzzle, which is to say the, the people who make large decisions around um, uh, major infrastructure, major building, um, and what assessment you bring to that, without them being a part of this conversation feels like one half. And so maybe we should have another one next year where we have all the people who, we, who, who are not here today but who are important to housing and to education and to health, the paymasters and the, and, and the people who sign off on things at a very high level, it would be very interesting to see how they respond to this subject. Exactly. The subject. Yeah. If I had one minute, I just thought it might be quite very useful to ask one question of anyone who wants to answer, because we've talked a lot about Australia. Very quickly, is there another city that represents great design from where you come from or from your understanding? And what is one reason why that other city represents great design? And you can't mention Denmark. <laughs> Barcelona. Um, Barcelona has a street called Las Ramblas, um, which supports walkability, it supports great food, it supports um, great life, that, is, that has a high sense of delight. Okay, that's it. I was going to say Copenhagen and Barcelona, but anyway. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much to all of you who have um, contributed to the discussion. I think it's incredibly interesting um, interesting parallels between headings, etc. Thank you so much, and thank you so much to a huge audience for sitting through um, a very warm and um, close <laughs> environment. Thank you so much.